from NATO Allied Command Transformation in Norfolk, Virginia. This is the Innovation Podcast, a discussion forum on the practice, strategy, and value of innovation as a critical tool for strengthening the NATO alliance. Today, we're joined by Butch Bracknell, Staff Legal Advisor for International Law at Supreme Allied Commander Transformation, for a discussion on the process and practice of managing innovation. Butch is a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel and received his JD from the University of Maryland's Francis King Carey School of Law and his Master of Laws degree from Harvard Law School. He's a graduate of the University of Virginia's Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership, a member of the Truman National Security Project's Defense Council, and a fellow with the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs. For NATO, Butch was previously assigned to the Stabilization Force in Bosnia and Herzegovina, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and the NATO training mission Afghanistan. He began his current assignment with Allied Command Transformation in 2014. Butch, thanks very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I think a good place to start here is with your branch itself. Uh, can you give us an overview of it and, and how the branch fits into ACT and NATO at large? Um, the Office of the Legal Advisor um, sits within the command group under the supervision of the Chief of Staff of the organization. Above the Chief of Staff here are the Supreme Allied Commander Transformation and the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Transformation, two four-stars that sit on top of Allied Command Transformation, which is a strategic command. Hmm. Allied Command Transformation is comprised of four main elements. The headquarters here, headquarters Supreme Allied Commander Transformation, and then three subordinate units that are in Portugal, Poland and Norway, that, and those uh, units perform functions which contribute to the transformation mission of Allied Command Transformation. Mm -hmm. And how do you describe your role? Uh, here at ACT, um, my job title is uh, Staff Legal Advisor for International Law, uh, but the truth is uh, the JD is a little more involved than that. Um, I Maybe international law probably captures 25% of my practice, but the other 75% really is on enabling the business of the headquarters. Um, we do a little human resources law. We do a little law about physical and information security, but so much of it is um, helping to, the team to manage transactions, um, commercial transactions, collabor collaborations with all kinds of neat organizations um, in order to generate products that service the, the three main output areas for um, Allied Command Transformation or for headquarters uh, for Supreme Allied Command Transformation anyway, which are strategic futures, especially strategic plans and programs or strategic futures, I like to call it deep futures, um, capability development and uh, joint force development, which is essentially human capital, individual and collective training. And there's an innovation component in all, in, in all three of those. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll talk about the intersection of legal compliance and innovation. For instance, why is it important for program managers within any of those three areas uh, to collaborate with your branch early in the development phase? You know, the early involvement piece. So we, we have a, a piece where we are trying to um, educate the rest of the staff about legal norms when we're developing things. So there's the international law piece. To If you're developing a targeting algorithm, 
you want to make sure that that targeting algorithm is taking taking account of the law of armed conflict, that the algorithm is learning to do targeting or learning to process information that feeds a targeting cycle in a way that's compliant with the law of armed conflict and compliant with our ethical norms about how to target people. So we have this substantive legal piece that we're trying to lay on top of our innovative programs, but then we have the process legal piece as well. Um, NATO's budget is paid by 30 nations. Those uh, those 30 nations are comprised of taxpayers. Those pa- taxpayers duly pay their, their taxes to their national governments, and those national governments contribute some of that money to the NATO common budget. We become the stewards of that budget. We become, uh, we, all of us, all of ACT, um, and all of, all of the NATO command structure and the agencies and everyone who is fed by the, um, the, the common budget, have a responsibility to, to steward those resources in a way that's consistent with, with how we believe the nations want us to spend money. Um, and so involving us early, particularly in a lot of the business transactions, us meaning legal, but not just legal, there's other areas as well that we need to have um, a matrixed organization where everybody can understand how the, how the headquarters is moving forward and the projects that we're trying to manage. The earlier I'm involved, and our headquarters here is pretty good about it, about bringing us in early on these things so that we understand the transactions from the get-go. There are risks that will become apparent to me that for someone else without my training, education, and experience, may, they may not appreciate. And that doesn't doesn't just hold true for legal. It also holds true for our political advisor. It also holds true for our strategic communications people. It also holds true for our finance people. So we're all trying to appreciate the work, the substantive work that Allied Command Transformation is trying to do and to, and to help balance a lot of the interests here. You know, there's governors in all innovative systems, uh, and they're there by design to balance our outcome effectiveness, the speed at which do we develop solutions and approaches and prototypes, cost and risk. And risk comes in all kinds of different uh flavors, right? You can have political risk, you can have security risk, you can have financial risk, you can have compliance risk, and you can have performance risk. These are all risks. There's lots of different types of risks. Mm-hmm. And my one of my roles here is to help our program managers and our senior leaders manage that risk. In my view, accepting that reality is really important to innovation. Um, innovation has to operate within the reality of the system. You can't wish it away or ignore it or dismiss it as red tape. It is a real thing. The nations expect us to balance things. They don't expect us just to go as fast as possible in one direction. They expect us to move out with dispatch on an innovative agenda while still stewarding our resources and still honoring our ethical principles and still doing business in a way um, that's consistent with the guidance that the nations have given mm-hmm. us. And they give us this guidance in lots of different ways. You know, the North mm-hmm. Atlantic Council will tell us, will give us policies or they'll, and the international staff will translate the, the North Atlantic Council's decisions into policy mm-hmm. and regulations and so forth. And those things mean something. They have the imprimatur of the nations behind them. And so in my view, we have a, we have an obligation to honor them and to consider them when we are developing our innovation agenda. Yeah. So part of your role then is balancing innovation with good governance. Hundred percent. I believe yeah. that they can coexist. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, e- in fact, they can be so complementary that each one can make the other better. They're not necessarily diametrically opposed. In so many instances, of course, innovation involves information or technology that can be proprietary. So uh, what I'm curious about is from a compliance perspective, how do you encourage collaboration and innovation 
and still protect proprietary information? Um, you just asked a really complicated question because it, it, it implies the intersection of NATO policy, um, operational goals, and the governing laws of 30 nations. <laughs> so that's a fairly complex um, matrix of authorities. I can best answer that to, by just telling you it's a, it, we are sensitive to that issue and we are constantly working individualized solutions to that. I'm constantly writing and negotiating licensing agreements. So if one country develops a certain capability, we will I'll write license agreements that allow other um, that they'll retain the ownership rights, but we'll license it to other NATO uh, entities to use freely, uh, no cost licensing, because um, under the theory that at some point the nation's kind of paid for things. Yeah. Um, and if we're going to be in an alliance, we have to be able to share with each other within the limits of national laws, right? At, at the end of the day, there we have 30 nations in the alliance, but they are 30 individual sovereigns, and they have 30 different sets of expectations about how information is going to pass from their borders to other borders and so forth. So we are constantly dealing with that. Um, a good way to, to um, one of the areas in which what you're talking about is manifest is inside the area of export control laws. Um, Explain what those are. What are, yeah. yeah. The issue is that information that arises inside that, that, that government or American, let's, let's take the U.S. for an example, that government or uh, American companies come up with in order to transfer that across national lines if it is information of a certain type. So um, it can be controlled items, so kit, pieces of gear, like think about an airplane or a tank or a weapon or a munition. Yeah. Or it can be certain types of information. It can be proprietary information. It can be algorithms. It can be certain what we call defense information is also covered by export control laws. And these export control laws don't say that you can never send that information to other countries. What they say is there's going to be some standards for this. First, you have to consider whether the information or the item is of the type that the United States has decided it wants to control. If yes, if, if it is the type of thing that is covered by these uh, statutes and regulations, then you simply have to go out and get authority to do it. So we're constantly massaging these processes to make sure that information can flow and we can keep our innovation processes going while still honoring and complying with national constraints in that regard. Yeah. Um, for the, here and, what, and what's the purpose of that, though? I mean, tell, tell us why. That's prohibiting so retransfer is the biggest issue. Yeah. So the last thing we want to do is, is sort of lose control over information and have it bounce to another NATO country uncontrolled. And then it bounces to another NATO country uncontrolled. And the next thing you know, it's in the hands of an adversary state yeah. who are able to either use it to their concrete advantage or use it to their informational advantage. You know, yeah. I mean, you could, I don't want to name any st adversary states, but you can imagine an adversary state holding up a piece of U.S. information that they got but weren't supposed to get and holding it up and saying, oh, look, you know, we're winning the information war against the United States because because we you know, you're feeding your information. You have no control over your information. And here it is. Um, yeah. So, so the, I mean, these these export control laws serve a very important function. Uh, related to uh, national security. 100%. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't evaporate just because it's a NATO purpose, right? Uh, the United States still is a sovereign and it still has, it has sets its own standards and, is, and it has, it retains the political um, authority to set its own standards. And we have to deal with the reality of that. You, you yeah. can't just fairy dust it away. You can't wish it away. What you have to do is recognize the system and then operate within it. And we, I mean, we always get it done. We always are able to negotiate these issues, but they do take time and effort and understanding. Right.
but that that is the importance of managing from a compliance perspective innovation that is the management of risk and that is the balancing of risk um with innovation right that innovation isn't just isn't isn't just a free license to do everything and anything it's a process and it has lots of competing components and one of those competing components is compliance yeah now you you mentioned that balance of risk with innovation and uh that leads me to the next question because in some circumstances there are those who might argue that compliance slows things down and therefore risks the success of an innovative idea or program. But at the same time, a program that fails completely to address compliance uh, could risk the institution at large. So in other words, moving fast and breaking things uh, can have significant consequence in a security context. So I wonder, um, first, can you define those two terms, institutional risk and program risk? Yeah, great question. So yeah. in my view, the way I view it, and I don't think this is a minority opinion, the institutional yeah. risk, when I think about institutional risk, first, I, I think about institutional risk to the alliance as a whole. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pat myself on the back here and say that I'm managing risk on behalf of NATO or anything like that. But I am constantly considering institutional risk to the alliance. But then I look at because I see the alliance as my client. So I'm thinking about institutional risk. Most program managers, and I don't blame them at all, they have one program in front of them. They've been tasked with doing one certain thing. They need to move the ball on issue X from point A to point B. And that's all they're concerned with, right? And so they're happy to accept some risks in that um, for the purpose of getting that work done. But they don't necessarily always, the reason that my branch is located in the command group is because my responsibility to SAC-T and DSAC-T, uh, the Supreme Allied Commander for Transformation, and DSAC-T and the Chief of Staff, my obligation for them is to help them zoom out and see the aggregate risk. And, to, and, and it doesn't mean that you always avoid it. It doesn't mean that you always mitigate it. Sometimes, you know, one of the tenets of risk management is you recognize the risk and you accept it because the thing you're trying to achieve outweighs the risk. Yeah. Okay, I accept that. I don't really, I'm, a, I'm solution agnostic. As long as we have gone through a process for appreciating the risk and understanding how much we're willing to accept. And I see that sometimes it's very difficult for people to understand the link between that and the legal advisor. Um, but little by little, transaction by transaction, I think it, I, I start to see light bulbs go on a lot of how I'm helping folks. Um, I, the re I came in here to record this podcast today and I was 45 minutes late because I was sucked into a meeting that I did not know was going to come on this very issue. Hmm. An <laughs> individual risk um, that that from the program officer's um, view doesn't look like a very big deal. But when you zoom out to about 10,000 feet, you can see the risk and you can say this is risk that SACT doesn't even know he would be purchasing. So let's let's dial back in on this and let's find some strategies to mitigate that risk at the, you know, at the get-go, at the ground level before that risk ever even materializes to SECTI. Mm -hmm. This very day, an hour and a half ago, this issue I was working on. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's literally every day. <laughs> okay. So it's just, it's, it's just woven into the fabric of your, of your, 100%. Of your, of your day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so let's get back to that idea about how compliance managing institutional risk against program risk and the governance that oversees all of that, how does that benefit innovation? 
long term, I think it benefits it because it prevents risks from materializing and off tracking our processes. Right. Mm-hmm. The sweet spot is to innovate as well and as fast as possible without having these risks materialize that really um, take you off your game. So what I what I very often tell my clients is innovation is not a license to discard process because even though the nations expect us to be innovative, they also didn't they you know they expect us to have an innovative spirit, but they also they that doesn't mean that they pulled off all of the rules that they expect us to follow. They still expect us to be responsible stewards of manpower and money. Um, so in my view, the the real key here is risk assessment and risk management, um, and so. When folks are doing innovation, they have to understand institutional risk can be so um, it can be so damaging to the institution that that individual risks can add up and aggregate in a way that can it can damage your your organization's reputation. Mm. Um, it can throw up roadblocks because you can have higher headquarters can come in and say that is not what we wanted you to do. So manage your risks more correctly, and so. To answer your question about the balancing of risk, you know, institutional risks can be, that is where I focus, is on those risks and helping senior leaders appreciate managed risks that aggregate from individual programs and helping individual program officers understand that it's not just their program, but it's, you know, in an organization that has 40, 50, or 60 different lines of work going on, that little bits of risk all across the enterprise can add up to a substantial attention getting amount of risk at the institutional level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what advice do you generally have for, uh, let's say, program managers when they begin developing a potential solution or or innovative concept? Tell me about it early so I can help you spot the risks. Bring yeah. us onto the team from the get-go. Um, so yeah. Because um, it's not helpful if I get a late start on help. The compliance obligation sometimes it sometimes there's a compliance obligation, sometimes there isn't. But if there is one, the sooner you start analyzing it and recognizing what you're going to do to deal with it, the less likely that it's going to delay your deliverable down the road. The compliance obligation is going to be the compliance obligation whether I know about it in week one, week eight, week twenty, or week forty. No matter what, that compliance obligation is going to, so I'd rather know about it in, in week one, and I'd rather learn about your project early and help you appreciate and reduce those risks early so that by the time you get 80% through the project, all those compliance obstacles have been reduced, and all you have to do is finish performance. Yeah. Now, as you probably know, uh, the SACT, Supreme Allied Commander Transformation, General Levine, is a rugby player. And in a previous podcast episode, he talked about a philosophy he learned from rugby that he applies to ACT, and that's, quote, win as a team. And so uh, I want to uh, apply that motto here and and to what you do uh, and ask, how does compliance and governance help ACT win as a team? Yeah. If this, right, if ACT were a rugby team, sometimes depending on the line that's out there, um, we get invited on. Hey, come on, come on in and play because you're really, really important for us to be able to to score a try, right? Yeah. Um, other times, depending on the line that's out there, we have to go. Hey, we'd like to play. We're over here. The ideal is to make sure that folks remember that we are a member of the team, that we have an important skill set, whether you know we're hookers or we're really good in the scrum or whatever. That that they're, we're bringing something that is ultimately going to make scoring the try easier, better, faster, more efficient with less risk. 
Um, so we do have to sometimes invite ourselves onto the field. Um, but I'm finding more and more we're finding lines that are willing to, to, to wave us onto the field and say, hey, come on, you know, sub out. Hey, legal, we need you on the team here. Um, and I'm finding more and more team captains who are willing to bring us onto the line. That's great. Okay. And, uh, you know, final question here. Uh, how do you see ACT's future? I mean, you know, the Alliance is over 70 years old, and this strategic headquarters has been here for 69 years, right? We, we have a longer and more enduring relationship than any other headquarters in, or entity in NADA. Uh, and so we are, I believe, this headquarters is more relevant than ever. Um, if the future of warfare is changing as fast as, as we believe it is, and it is, let's be clear, you know, we don't even really know what hybrid warfare fully is. And we, we're just getting our heads around, really getting our heads around information warfare, disinformation, um, cognitive warfare, the potential for the use of hypersonics and unmanned technology and quantum in our comms, oh my gosh, and decision support, all these things, conflict is going to keep moving faster and changing. And someone has to has to have responsibility for thinking through those big problems. A lot of those big problems are being thought through at NATO headquarters, but we're here to do the hard work on that, on those mm. things. We're here to be try to looking out at the future in terms of developing the force and developing our concepts and developing our doctrine and developing our capabilities to be fit for purpose for conflict in the next century. Um, so ACT, I think, is is on as firm a fitting as has ever been, if not more so. Um, the need for what we're doing here is never been greater. And I, I, we are, I think, I can't speak for everybody in the headquarters, but I generally get the idea. Everybody here is positive about what we're doing and uh, excited to be on the team and excited to be generating things that our operational partners in Europe can actually put on the ground and use in order to deter conflict or to, to do crisis management or to do crisis response every day. Because those, those demand signals for that is not going away. Yeah. Well, uh, Butch, I just want to say thank you for, uh, for your time today. This has been a really great conversation. Appreciate it. It was my pleasure to be here, and, and I hope that this was useful, and I hope that folks that listen to this podcast have a better idea of what we contribute, what we bring, the efforts that we make, and in moving the innovation agenda and the transformation agenda of this headquarters uh, forward. Uh, I'm honored to be part of the team, and, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to communicate what I was able to communicate here today. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. You bet.